From the newsroom of Impact Alpha, I'm Monique Aiken, and this is your Impact Briefing for Friday, September 22nd. Today, Impact Alpha's David Bank is joined by Marjorie Kelly of the Democracy Collaborative to take up one of my favorite topics, systemic change. Marjorie's new book is Wealth Supremacy, How the Extractive Economy and the Biased Rules of Capitalism Drive Today's Crises. But first, here's what you need to know from the week in Impact Investing. Climate Week NYC and the UN General Assembly brought a flood of pledges, protests, and prognostications. At this week's events, investors may have noticed the term nature-based solutions. That involves not only trees in the Amazon, but oyster reefs in Bangladesh, mangroves in East Africa, wetlands in Nepal, and even the reintroduction of beavers in the UK. In a guest post on Impact Alpha, Rasan Khalifa al-Mubarak of the International Union for Conservation of Nature said such solutions can be implemented faster and more cost-effectively than tech solutions like electric cars and carbon capture. One material change will be new legislation in California to require large businesses to disclose their direct and indirect carbon emissions, as well as their climate-related risks and plans to address them. Governor Gavin Newsom is expected to sign the bill soon. The U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission has approved its new rules to fight greenwashing by barring the misleading use of ESG terms in mutual fund names. And climate funds continue to rake in big bucks. San Francisco billionaire Tim Steyer has raised more than $1 billion for his Galvanized Climate Solutions Fund for early-to-growth-stage climate ventures. The fund has already backed nearly a dozen companies, including zero-carbon aviation fuel producer Lydian and sustainable farming lender Steward. And tech investor Chris Saka's Lower Carbon Capital has raised $550 million for two climate tech funds. One fund will focus on early-stage climate ventures. The other will make select follow-on investments. Lower Carbon's recent investments include UK-based Isometric, which is building a carbon registry for long-duration carbon credits, and San Francisco-based Charm Industrial, which is turning agricultural waste into carbon-rich bio-oil and sequestering it underground. And now for this week's conversation. Marjorie Kelly is a journalist, author, and distinguished fellow with the Democracy Collaborative. Her latest book tackles wealth supremacy, how the extractive economy and the biased rules of capitalism drive today's crises. And it's out now. Let's jump into Marjorie and David's conversation. There's so much talk about reimagining capitalism or capitalism 2.0. And uh, I always think, okay, some of these efforts are well-intentioned, but they take as the starting point capitalism as a given. And it's all a, a riff on, on what kind of capitalism. And I, I wonder why that's the case. It feels a little bit like a, like a, like a college, you know, poli-sci course, you know, uh, over and over and over again. And, 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 and can't we get beyond the debate of whether it's capitalism or something else and just get to how to, how to run the, the economy in a better way? You know, that's absolutely right, David. There's, you know, tons of, of rethinking capitalism, moral capitalism. And what, one of the things I say in the book is moral capitalism is as impossible as moral racism. And the reason is that it's a system of bias. And this is, this is what I talk about. I call it capital bias. 
I call it wealth supremacy. It's threaded through the system and it's really all aimed at benefiting capital, which is, is of course another name for wealth. And I think until we look at that bias, how pervasive it is and start to challenge it, we're not going to make, we're not going to make real change. You know, I don't want to actually rehash the college, you know, poli sci course, because I think, um, I think uh, people will sort of land where they land on that. Uh, but I do want to take up what I think is a sort of particularly salient for our listeners, which is the critique of some of the even the reform movements that you're talking about, the impact right. investors, the ESG, the 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 sustainability, the sustainable finance folks, and um, you call out another another sort of um, hobby horse of ours, which is you know market rate returns or risk adjusted market rate returns, as people sometimes uh, refer to it, and essentially benchmarking what the sustainable folks are hoping to get against a essentially extractive economy that that set the market rate. Yeah, that's right. I mean, when we say we want market rate returns and two thirds of even impact investors are saying that we need market rate returns. I think what, what we're saying inadvertently is keep the status quo. Don't actually change anything. <laughs> um and so I think it's it's a hindrance and we need to we need to look at that. And I think the whole idea is we need to flip around the paradigm and say, well, what's the purpose of capital in the real world? What purpose is it serving rather than just enriching itself this maximum amount? I mean, are we are we trying to sustain the planet? Are we trying to create good jobs, you know, sustainable, small and medium sized businesses. What is it that we're trying to do? Let's focus on that. And we want, we want reasonable returns, but not not maximum. Why is um, making the business case, as you put it, what, you know, as opposed to a, a, a different argument? Why is making the business case a bad thing? You know, I, I started in this business back in 1987. I, I was a co-founder of Business Ethics magazine. And back then, it was always about the business case. I mean, how do you talk to business in terms that it can understand in order to promote ethics or sustainability or, or uh, you know, community relations and all of these? And I think, you know, there's something to be said for speaking the language of business, uh, and that's important. But I think if that's all that we do, then we're basically reinforcing the paradigm. I mean, we're saying, you know, maximum profits are still the goal. Gains to shareholders are still come before everything else. And as, as long as we're saying that, we're not going to flip the paradigm. We're not going to have real change. And um, so I think there's a danger of making the business case. I think it's, I think it's a, a little too timid, particularly given the state of emergency that we're in now. I, I, I hear you. Uh, sometimes where, where I go, though, is that um, the argument seems to be that if we um, just, you know, d that that sometimes these uh, half measures, as, as, as some people might call them, um, mm -hmm. around ESG, that they're somehow distracting from somehow a more kind of trans transformative um, strategy that would, would get at these core issues, as you say. But I, I, I sometimes fear that, you know, if we didn't have these half measures, we'd have like no measures or, or we'd, 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 we'd have the status quo. We not, it's not clear to me, we'd have something more transformative it might be, you know, quite a bit less transformative. Yeah. I don't think there's a simple answer here, but, but what I, what I would love to see is 
is impact investors and I think socially responsible investors more broadly, even though it's an old fashioned term, I still like to use it, you know, come together and talk about if we were to get serious about system change, particularly sustainability, you know, what would that look like? And, and not just think that if we keep using the tools we've been using for 30 years, everything is going to be fine because I think we know that it, that it won't. Uh, and so what do, we, what do we need to do now to up our game? I think that to me is the interesting question. Let me just press you one more one more round on this because you, you quote these, uh, I think, half dozen business school profs um, and they, they yeah. go right at it. They say the massive growth of corporate sustainability programs under the business case is not benign. It is a cancer. The longer it metastasizes and continues to crowd out healthier interventions, the greater the risk that it will kill our prospect of pulling back from environmental disaster. So corporate sustainability programs are not just ineffectual, they're actually bad, they're saying. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I love that quote. I think it's very provocative. And I think what they're saying is these half measures can give us the illusion that we're doing something. And I think that's that's the danger. I, I think you're right that if we didn't do the half measures, maybe we would do nothing. But let's let's say that they've kind of laid down a narrative. They've they've created a community. They've created openings. But what are we going to do with that? I think we need to we need to take this to the next step. We need to say how do we actually get system change? How do we actually preserve the economy or bring down these uh, these fossil fuel companies? And let, let's get serious about what's what's needed that's what i i would like to see indeed indeed the way i sometimes think of it maybe this is a journalistic um approach um, partly because we can then report on each you know tick of the of the wheel um is that uh each stage you know sort of begets the next stage and so you get certain kind of transparency and then you get certain kind of accountability and then you get certain kinds of pledges and 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 each each part sort of sets up sets up you know either an infrastructure or at least a framing that lets you move to the next level and that would sort of make it more of a stepwise function um, as opposed to an either or um is there anything to that or am i just being naive i think you i think that's smart yeah a stepwise function i i think you're right so what is the next step or the series of next steps that we need to take and you know what's the change in culture what's the change in policy you know what's the role of investors in in working with other groups for these kinds of things i, I you know we really need to get serious about system change this is what i uh where i've landed and i i think Impact investors in particular have a huge role to play. And I, I just love to hear dialogue about what that is. What can we do? Let's start it out. What do investor impact investors need to do and what do they need to change? Sure. All right. Well, let's let's start with recognizing the problem we face, which is and economists call it financialization. There's too much financial wealth in the world, too much financial capital. Now that you know, at the individual level, we want to maximize our portfolios. But at the aggregate level, uh, there there's too much uh, financial wealth, too many financial demands being made on our society and our planet. Um, so if you start there, then you say, well, well, what do we do about that? How would you 
how would you move forward from that? It's a lot like climate change. I mean, the problem is in the aggregate and the problem is enormous. And so what, what do we begin, what are the steps we take to begin to move beyond this state of, of capital being in control of everything? Well, one of the things we need, for example, is debt forgiveness. Um, and there are groups working on that. For example, debt for nature swaps are happening. There's a really powerful one in Belize, I think it was about $500 million and private investors funded that. I think there was like a haircut of about 50%. Um, and it was uh, very powerful players put this together and, um, and, and supported it. You know, it's so, it's so, so there's a write down of debt that Belize owes by a substantial amount, you know, I think a couple hundred million dollars. And in return, they agree to preserve these ecological areas. I mean, to me, that's a brilliant, it's a brilliant move. And it helps investors because we're reducing systemic risk, uh, which, which as we know is, is enormous. You can't have a great portfolio on a planet that's, that's fried. So I think that's one example. Oh, you know, another example is is uh, is local investing and impact investing, and I think we need to stop thinking of this as a as a nice little boutique thing on the side, and maybe we'll put five percent into it. Uh, we need to start making the distinction between productive investments and speculative investments. You know, if we're moving stocks around from one publicly traded company to another, are we really making system change? You know, no, we're not. That money is not actually even reaching those companies in 98% of the, of the cases. So it's not really a productive investment. Uh, a productive investment is small, medium-sized business. You want to help it grow or you want to create, uh, you know, cooperative housing. There are productive investments that we need to be making. And I, I would love to see people focusing on that. So those are, those are a couple of examples of the kinds of things we can do. One of the um, sort of structures that you call out, and, and, and we're very taken with it um, as well, is sort of increasing what we're calling the ownership economy, but all, all kinds of forms that go from home ownership and business ownership, of course, but also to to like worker ownership of, of, of companies. Um, and I, I wonder how you think of that in this in this broader context. At some level, it's turning the workers um, into the investors. You know, they get an actual stake of the equity. Is that a positive or is that sort of increasing the financialization? Oh, no, I see. I think that's positive because I think we need to say there's too much wealth in too few hands. Let's add that second phrase, because I think if if wealth is more broadly spread, it's going to be more stable. It's going to be more beneficial. It's not going to be as spiky and 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 risk uh, risk prone, I think, is having this massive wealth in very few hands that has to keep growing. <laughs> yeah, I love worker ownership. I've been working for that for years. My colleagues and I helped design the Fund for Employee Ownership in the Evergreen Cooperatives in Cleveland, which is purchasing companies, converting them to employee ownership, and bringing them into the network of, uh, of Evergreen Cooperatives. I, I love that model. And I I think in, in investors have a huge role to play in that. And there's there's money to be made. Uh, recent reasonable money, uh, and then in the end, investors don't own it, but workers do. That's the kind of transformative system change uh, move that we need. And I think you're right. We need a great ownership transition. People need to own their houses. They need to own the place where they work. Communities need to own water and electricity. Uh, forests. Fifteen percent of forests worldwide are already controlled by indigenous or community groups, and this has been. The UN calls this a model that is essential to preserving 
of biodiversity. So a great ownership transition. Yes, we need that. We can't have the 1% owning everything. Speaking of step-by-step, step, some of the even the biggest uh, private equity firms led by KKR have at least nominally gotten onto the worker ownership uh, bandwagon um, and and making the case that you know it helps uh, raise the value of their of the companies they buy you know mm -hmm. employee motivation and retention and and that sort of thing um, I, I I think it's still quite a small percentage of the companies that these employees own yeah um, but is that a step in the right direction it's or is that a yeah it's a step in the right direction uh, you know so that workers are helping to share the wealth that they're creating. Um, it's, it tends to be short-term ownership and a, and a small amount, and there's no employee voice. So again, it's a step in the right direction, but I think on a continuum uh, that you want to have more long-term ownership, you want broad-based ownership, at least 30% in workers' hands, and you want to have worker, worker voice. Um, I, I would love to see uh, KKR help develop the model. You know, could, could private equity or institutional investors in invest in a kind of model that is more uh, long-term, deep, real employee empowerment. I, I, I think um, there's a lot of work to be done there. In fact, I'm, I'm working with a pre-distribution initiative on, on a meeting we'll be doing in November, exploring what are the ways investors can play in the field of employee ownership. It's an important, it's an important field. I love that concept of pre-distribution, um, uh, and it, and it, and it, it appears to go down easier than than what people sometimes uh, resist on redistribution. Um, but pre-distribution <laughs> uh -huh. being being stakes up front, and then and then everybody gets to build that value together again. It sort of a little bit um, um, blurs this line between between capital and labor, and, yeah, and makes right. everybody sort of in it together. Yeah, I think I think that's right. How can we pre-distribute the wealth? Uh, not just after the tax, uh, not just after the fact through taxes and so on. But like an important model, I, I think an exciting one is uh, Taylor Guitars in Canada. And there was a large Canadian pension fund that funded uh, this. Uh, the, the founders wanted to exit. They got money from a pension fund, and now it's going to be owned by workers 100% over time. And the pension fund is just thrilled with the returns that they're getting. They're, they're exactly where they need it to be. And, and then in the end, workers will own this. And so that's that's an alternative to the private equity model or another model on the continuum um, of, of how even big investors can play in converting companies to worker ownership. One of the problems you, you you point out is how kind of the system writ large uh, absorbs uh, kind of everything in in, in its path. Um, I, I wonder whether there's a there's a model where sort of autonomous systems get big enough that they kind of can operate with a logic of their own. Yeah. For example, we we had a call um, with. Uh, a, a, a number of financial intermediaries mobilizing capital in Indian country on in, in tribal lands, uh -huh. and they made the case that they didn't want to be um, me measured and 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 sort of um, uh, in the mix of of the broader kind. They wanted to build an indigenous economy, a native economy, um, with its own you know cultural values, etc. And 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 the question is, you know, are those things viable, or do they get swallowed up ultimately? You know, it's a, it's a good question. And so let me put that into two parts. I mean, we call it the democratic economy. Um, 
at the at the Democracy Collaborative, and it's an economy for all of us, and it's designed with the public good in mind. And so there are various models in that: worker ownership, public public banks, CDFIs, uh, community land trusts. Uh, you know, there's lots of lots of models within that kind of of economy. And are those models viable? Is it viable that we could have an entire economy designed to serve the public good with broad-based ownership? And I would say, yes, it's, these models are proven to be, to be viable. So, so then the question is, um, in the pathway of getting from here to there, is what we're doing getting swallowed up? And I would say, yes, it is. And that's why we need to turn and challenge the system as it is. Because if we just try to build the good stuff, and this is what I've been focusing on for 30 years, I've been mostly writing about and building and consulting about just the good stuff. And what I'm realizing is, no, it is being, it is being devoured. And let me give you one example. Um, our, our new CEO at the Democracy Collaborative is Stephanie McHenry. She used to be the president of Shore Bank Cleveland. And Shorebank uh, in Chicago and the whole network of Shorebanks, that was the first CDFI. This was the bank on which the whole CDFI model uh, was built. So Stephanie was in the business of making good loans uh, to disadvantaged communities in Cleveland. Well, guess what? Um, the 2008 crisis came along. I mean, before that, you had predatory mortgage lenders moving in and replacing these good loans with bad loans with predatory terms, and they almost brought down the whole global economy and families lost $5 trillion in equity and Shore Bank was destroyed. And so this whole, this, this founding model of how banks ought to be was, was one of the, uh, you know, part of the byproduct of predatory lending. Um, I'll give you another example. And that is, um, there's been a big movement to divest from fossil fuels and to encourage um, fossil fuel companies to divest their dirtiest assets. And many have done so. Um, but guess who's buying those dirty assets? Private equity. And in some cases, they're tripling production. So you're not really getting these dirty assets out of the world, which is what we need. You're just putting them into hands that are more in the shadows. They're less accountable, uh, less transparent. And so that, again, points to the need for system change. I mean, just divesting, you know, ConocoPhillips divesting its dirty assets and then you know, giving them to private equity, that the system is going to flow around whatever we put in place. Um, you know, you put in Superfund regulations. Well, they send oil, they send um, chemical production to, to China. So it's very skilled at moving around whatever we put in place. And so that's why I think we need to turn and say, well, wait a minute, maximizing gains to capital, that's an illegitimate game. We can't run our economy based on that aim anymore. Well, here's the kicker question then, which is, you know, the political mobilization that you're talking about, uh, where is it? In some level, the energy has been on the other side, criticizing woke capitalism and, you know, attacking ESG and in some states even banning, um, banning these half measures um, as, as, as going too far. So um, it seems that there needs to be a, a, a commensurate um, political mobilization uh, in favor of the things you're talking about. Why hasn't that become a popular rallying cry? Well, so David, I think this is, I think this is what's next up for us. You know, we, we talked about the, the step change. I think 
coming together around system change and getting serious about it. I think that's the next step. And uh, no, we're not th- we're not there yet. Uh, I think we need to move beyond the half measures to to more serious um, transformative measures. And um, I, you know, I, I hearken back to feminism back in the seventies, and so I don't think that we worry first of all about our critics because you know you don't start a feminist revolution by arguing with your dad. <laughs> you talk to each other, right? We have to get. Together, we have to get our own solidarity, our arguments, our clarity. Uh, we need that first and then become a movement that, that, uh, that gains power. I think that's, where, that, that's our next step. You talked about dreaming big enough. Uh, Marjorie Kelly, author of Wealth Supremacy, How the Extractive Economy and the Biased Rules of Capitalism Drive Today's Crises, just out. Uh, thanks so much for joining us, Marjorie. David, this has been great fun. Thanks for having me. We want to take a moment to mourn the passing this week of Suzanne Beagle, a true agent of impact and a good friend of Impact Alpha. Suzanne was an early champion of gender lens investing and, in particular, strategies at the crucial intersection of gender and climate. Impact Alpha is honored to support her legacy project, Heading for Change, which includes catalytic investments and grants to accelerate proven solutions to advance climate action and gender equity. Impact Alpha has put together a tribute to Suzanne in today's brief.